Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The Anwar Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, as always, I am Adam Wilder, and today we have a great guest. Mr. Matthew Sermon is the Executive Director, Program Executive Office, Strategic Submarines, which means he is a great person to talk about the future of the ballistic missile submarine, the, the SSBN. And I thought, of course, we don't talk Navy that often. So, you know, as a former Navy guy myself, I wanted to talk Navy and talk about the nuclear component of the Navy. So with that, Matt, welcome to NucleCast. Thanks for having me on, Adam. Excited to talk to you today. So this is the first time we've really focused on the, you know, the submarine and the future submarine, our, you know, our next generation. Could you talk about where we are, where we're going? Are we on track? Are we behind schedule? We just had a Nun McCurdy breach for Sentinel. Are, are we having trouble uh, with Columbia? Where, where are we? Yeah, I'd, I'd be, be happy to, uh, to to talk through that, Adam. So, um, lead ship Columbia is under construction. Uh, sh- uh, she's about it's the the future USS District of Columbia SSBN eight twenty six. Uh, she's about 40% complete, uh, starting to come together in big modules. Uh, so some modules built, uh, coming together, uh, at, uh, electric boat. Um, as your listeners may or may not know, right. About three quarters of the ship is built by general dynamics, electric boat in, uh, Groton, Connecticut, Quonset point, Rhode Island, and about a quarter, uh, built down in the Hampton roads area at Newport news shipbuilding. So uh, she's, she's at that point where the ship is going to start coming together. Uh, we are uh, experiencing the kind of learning uh, that you typically have on a first of class. Uh, and of, of course, as your listeners probably know, uh, you know, we don't build ships that are more complicated uh, than a ballistic missile submarine. And so we, we've got a fair amount of learning, uh, but we did some things early in the program uh, that are, are serving us well now, right? We didn't, um, we stuck with mature technologies. Uh, we've kept the requirements stable. We did uh, a large amount of prototype construction areas where we, where we hadn't done that type of construction or those type of welds for a while. Uh, we did a lot of that early. Uh, we also heavily leveraged uh, what we had learned on modular submarine construction from the Virginia class. Uh, and while we are having, uh, you know, we so, some, somewhat famously had some uh, missile tube quality issues in, in 2018 to 2019 range uh, that did impact us and impact our, our margin to schedule. Uh, and, and we've had, had some other uh, issues along the way, including the fact that, right, we're, we're going to build uh, the most complicated submarine in the history of the world, most complicated and capable submarine in the history of the world. Uh, without the industrial base that we had the last time we recapitalized ballistic missile submarines, which I'm sure 
uh, I'll talk about at some point in here. All of, all of those things in play, uh, we're, we're, we're doing pretty well. We're, we're um, you know, on, on about the, the contract delivery pace uh, of 84 months with some, some critical path items, uh, you know, that, that we need to move uh, b- backward uh, to hit the schedule. Um, and we're very much focused on learning uh, for the second ship, uh, SSB 827, the future USS Wisconsin, and then getting into what we call the one plus two cadence. Uh, those years from late in the decade until uh, late in the 2030s, when we've got to deliver a Columbia class submarine every year and continue to deliver attack submarines that the Navy and nation need. Um, and during um, during that period, that'll also be, uh, uh, of course, I, I say, of course, it, it's, it's fundamental to my everyday, but for your listeners, that, that same period of time is when the Ohio class submarines uh, will be uh, aging out after an extraordinary uh, li- life of service to, to the nation. And so we've got to be able to deliver those Columbia class submarines on time. So as we go work our way through these first of class uh, learning issues, it's, it's critical that we go and apply those so that ultimately the most important thing for the program is that we can get into that cadence uh, that we need to by late in the decade. Now, can you give for our listeners who may not be familiar with some of the differences between Ohio and Columbia, can, can you give us some examples of what are the differences between these classes of submarines? Absolutely. Um, So uh, I think it's, it's important note up front is that we purposefully uh, did not go and drive, you know, 10 or 12 new technologies into Columbia. Uh, uh, The Ohio class submarine works great. And it's been an incredible survivable foundation of our of our nation's strategic deterrence. Uh, and so, you know, Columbia is about the same size, a little bit bigger, uh, the same length, uh, a little bit wider uh, for for some uh, build considerations and and other things. I can't talk about here. Uh, the Columbia is more survivable, um, and so you know, le- leverage technology, weapons, sensors uh, to to make her more survivable. Um, she she does have uh, electric propulsion, uh, so the the uh, you know only a couple submarines in our history have had that, and it's the the first modern submarine to have that. Uh, she has a, a a life of ship reactor, so no midlife refueling, uh, which is what enabled the program uh, to as as we were contemplating requirements back in the in the in the the twenty tens, um, able the program to have twelve submarines instead of fourteen because you you don't have that long refueling period in the, in the middle of the, of the ship's life. Uh, Columbia was designed uh, three-dimensionally, so in, inside a product lifecycle model, uh, which is, is, is the first submarine that we've fully done that in, uh, mean, meaning that she'll be maintained, uh, she'll be digitally sustained, uh, which will be the, the first time we've ever done that. Uh, other basic things, uh, fewer missile tubes, uh, 24 on an Ohio versus 16 uh, on a Columbia, uh, Columbia will be the first ballistic missile submarine that has a, a propulsor uh, rather than a conventional propeller. Um, and then there, there's a handful of other uh, more minor uh, systems kind of things. But, you know, we, we uh, really value what the Ohio ha- has given us. So from a mission profile perspective and everything else, we really di- didn't try to uh, lean too far forward, just take advantage of technology survivability, what we learned about, mo- about modular building. Ohio, Ohio was built, you know, in the, in the shipbuilding world, we call it stick built. 
Uh, so rather than a module that you sit, you, you piece together was built up a, 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 a large piece at a time. So uh, every advantage we could take in that space, we did as well. Now did a lot of these, you know, the, the fact that you're not trying to put a whole bunch of new technologies, the fact that, you know, it's a, you know, life of the ship reactor, you know, the way it was built, did that help drive down costs? Was that sort of a consideration or was that not part of the planning? Yeah. Uh, the, the life of ship reactor, the, the not, the not trying to drive a lot of new technologies. Those certainly are cost and schedule mitigators and were, were part of the requirements calculus. Um, you know, it, a pretty straightforward fact is that building bliss missile submarines is expensive. Um, and it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very com- complex machine, uh, with challenging requirements. Uh, we are cost conscious and really the, the, the things we can do best in shipbuilding to be cost conscious are to be on schedule. <laughs> and not, not only is it critical, uh, to hit the schedule to replace the Ohio class, but, uh, ships, ships in a shipyard, uh, over a long period of time, those, those costs are, you know, they honestly, those, those tend to drive program cost more than an, an, uh, an individual technology does from, from my, you know, shipbuilding background, both, both can depend, depending on how challenging your issue is, but though, you know, lingering in a shipyard uh, tends to drive costs. So we're, we're very, very much schedule focused on the program. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier the industrial base, can you talk about, you know, and this is part of, is you know, I know the Air Force best, so I'll analogize through Sentinel. And one of the things that's driving cost overruns and schedule delays on Sentinel is the fact that there are things in the manufacturing process that they haven't done in 50 years. And there are skill sets and capabilities that don't exist that people are having to relearn and there's shortages of the types of skilled labor that they need. Can you talk about where the industrial base is and, you know, these kinds of challenges, if you have any, you know, where, where are we there? Yeah, we, we have them in spades. We have those challenges in spades, Adam, and I'll, I'll talk about them uh, from a perspective of uh, one interesting thing that we did about two years ago is uh, we, we broke the submarine acquisition and sustainment enterprise up by function uh, rather than one program executive office responsible for submarines. Uh, we now have three. Um, and so uh, my, my particular job, along with the Admiral Scott Papano, uh, we really have three jobs, right? One, build Columbia. Two, keep Ohio in service effectively. And the third job assigned by the SECNAV uh, in October of 21 was to lead the capability and capacity increase in the submarine industrial base. By that time, just from building, uh, going to transitioning to two per year Virginia class submarine, uh, sustaining our SSNs and SSBNs, uh, going through the the what I'll call the workforce hell of COVID, uh, which I'll, I'm sure I'll dwell on that later. But right, I don't, I don't, I don't think COVID fundamentally changed our demographics. It just made us more aware of how scarce human resources are in this nation and the skill sets that we needed. It, it, it was, it was coming anyway, but it made us more aware more quickly. Uh, and so Admiral Papano and I, uh, we, we have a, a program within our organization uh, led by a, a lady named Whitney Jones uh, that is responsible for investment, 
process change, driving technology, workforce programs, national marketing campaign, all kinds of those things. And, you know, that's all underlied by the fact that um, when we recapitalized ballistic missile submarines the last time, one one per year Ohio's in the in the mid eighties. You just I oftentimes when I talk to folks, I, I say, jump back forty years, right? Put yourself in December of nineteen eighty-three. And we were a thirty-six percent manufacturing nation by gross domestic product. About thirty-four to thirty-five percent of our workforce was in manufacturing. Um and we were building uh you know Two different kinds of submarines, air, uh, building aircraft carriers, building frigates and destroyers and cruisers, uh, and building uh, still building sea lift ships and and uh, multiple different aircraft. And you look at that industrial base and how it was able to borrow from the commercial industrial base, uh, and it's a stark difference from where we are uh, thirty years hence from the from the end of the Cold War, where you know manufacturing as a percentage of GDP is about 12%. Our workforce is about 11% manufacturing. And here we are in that ramp to one per year ballistic missile submarine again, which we we do build them more efficiently, but they're also more complex and still require lots of heavy industrial skills. So uh, welders, machinists, non-destructive testing inspectors are all critical needs that we have to fill. Uh, And so, you know, we have a model that we built of like what we have to go do with recruiting across the nation. And just in new construction, we have to hire about a hundred thousand people over the next 10 years and quite frankly, improve our, our attrition rates as well. And so we have a strategy to do that. Uh, we've been uh, incredibly blessed to have um, the attention and funding uh, of, of the Pentagon and Congress uh, to, to go after this. Uh, and really we, we, we've, uh, I think we've set, set some benchmarks and how we go get the workforce we need, how we train them and retain them. We've got some programs that are, are frankly coming to scale. Uh, and then simultaneously and very much related to that, um, we're not just going to magically become a, a, a manufacturing nation again uh, overnight. And we have to adapt technology as well, right? Our, our potential competitive advantage is advanced manufacturing. Um, I talk very frequently about uh, the idea that metal additive manufacturing is here. It is not uh, a thing of the future. And to get to the capability and capacity we need for metal forming that we had back in the 80s, uh, we've got to be able to go to metal, metal additive manufacturing at scale. So that's one of the things we're working on with our SIB team, working across programs. Uh, we just put um, a metallically additive manufactured part on a submarine. We did we did two two, two on submarines in 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 calendar year twenty three. Uh, we're going to get close to a hundred additional parts on submarines uh, this coming year. Uh, and in, in the next uh, two to three years, we're going to drive metallic additive manufacturing to scale and fundamentally alter our industrial base and increase metal forming capacity by fifteen to twenty percent. Um, probably easy to see how, how, how excited I am about that. I think that's an, as, as we go and learn and build and improve on how we're building Columbia and Virginia, build that workforce that we need, transition uh, to advanced manufacturing technology. Uh, and then, you know, one other thing we have to do that I talk about often is uh, we have to move millions of hours of work outside of the shipbuilders into the rest of the industrial base. So we've got to move actual submarine uh, metal forming fabrication and modular outfitting out to the industrial base uh, several million hours uh, to get to that baseline that'll enable one plus two. Uh, if we do all those things and simultaneously learn 
uh, on Columbia, uh, it's, it's going to be no problem. We're going to knock it out of the park. So we're at that time of the show where we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, I would ask you to go into more detail on additive manufacturing. Exactly what is it? So if our listeners aren't familiar with it, tell us more about it. You're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. The ANWA Deterrence Center and Nuclecast team joins the Exchange Monitor in inviting you to the 16th Annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit, January 31st through February 2nd at the Weston, Washington, D.C. Go to our website at anwadeter.org to register and receive a 15% discount. We look forward to seeing you there. And we're back and we're talking to Matt Sermon. And before the break, I had asked you to give us some some more detail on additive manufacturing, particularly. I, I've seen, you know, at the national labs, you know, they were early, you know, first movers on some additive manufacturing. Can you tell us what, when you talk about it, what exactly are you talking about and what types of things are you, are you building through this process? Yeah, uh, thanks for that, Adam. It's an uh, incredibly energizing question for me. Um, so we are using uh, laser powder bed fusion, right? Which is you know a powder that's that's melted into into a part uh, and directed energy deposit, which is essentially welding, uh, depositing welding bead. We're using those and uh, working with some, uh, some of the labs, working with our industry partners, working with the technology sector. Uh, the shipbuilders and academia uh, to mature six critical materials. Um, those materials, uh, which I won't won't talk too much specifics here, but they, but they're you know they're they're not mysterious, right? They're uh, nickel alloys and and steel alloys and uh, uh, metals that are uh, protective against corrosion and have high strength. The kind of things that we we put in salt water, <clears throat> and we're um, driving those materials to equivalence, meaning that whenever I cast something or forge something, um, that when I hit print on a machine, think of a, you know, of, of a, 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 cl- a classic machine tool uh, set up to actually deposit metal, that when I hit print on that, that the material I'm getting out the other end uh, our technical warrant holder community understands that that material is equivalent uh, to what I would cast or forge. Has great opportunities for valves, uh, for fittings, uh, for fasteners, for things that, and, and anything else that is cast and forged now, right? And we're, we're doing it in uh, a bunch of different ways, right? Laser focus on those materials. Uh, we spent about, uh, it's been about two years now that we've had a monthly all day get together with the technical community uh, and uh, major submarine programs where we've talked about where we are, where our opportunities are, where our challenges are, what we need to do with requirements. Um, just this past, we made, we made really awesome progress just this past year. Uh, the the su- submarine technical community at NAVC uh, put out a, a, a low severity letter, meaning that for probably about 20%, 20, 25% of our submarine parts, uh, they've been assessed as low severity. And so we, we don't need to go do a part by part qualification 
uh, in order to print them and put them on a submarine. And we're, we're taking advantage of that now. Um, and that, that's really come with increased confidence in the printing. Um, ad additionally, as you know, the, the, the key factors uh, for, a for submarine and frankly surface ships are corrosion and fatigue, right? The metal, uh, the strength of the metal, while, while we're gonna go test it, we're gonna go verify that. Not super worried about that. We know we can print the, the strength, uh, but how do we get uh, the right microstructure of, the, of given metals uh, to be able to withstand uh, living in salt water, <laughs> having salt water flow, flowing, flowing through the component or by the component or sitting in salt water, uh, and the incredible stress that a, a, a surfacing and submerging submarine or a surface ship crashing through waves um, feels through, throughout a, a long life cycle. How, how do we go and prove that out? Rather than, um, I'll call it the conventional method of well, we'll go. We'll go have you know some research folks go and do, do a study for this one specific problem, and we'll contract for it for. It'll take a year, then it'll take six months or a year to do the study, and then we'll come back and we'll see how it fits. What we've stood up is a consortium, right? You know, it it uh, it. Uh, I want it to feel uh, more like the Manhattan Project uh, than than sort of our conventional acquisition approach, right? Where I've got a large team, uh, fourteen universities. Uh, ranging across the applied research and academic world where every time that we come up with a technical issue, hey, I'm worried about this particular material and its corrosion properties or its fatigue properties, that I've got a, a university that will go work on it right then, like tomorrow uh, kind of approach. Uh, and wh while we're doing that, we're also putting um, putting components on submarines, proving them out. It, you know, it's, a, it's a, uh, an all hands on deck evolution. And we're really excited about where we're going there. So if 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 I assume that that what we can make through additive manufacturing is equivalent to a forged or cast like you said valve or something what about cost where does additive manufacturing fit in with the cost of these other you know traditionally made parts Yep good 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 question and one one we're we're thinking about a lot uh, today, if if I if I take uh, the, co the the cost of making a casting versus the cost of the one-off cost of, of of an AM component, the AM component is certainly uh, more more expensive. Um, as we uh, stabilize our monitoring, uh, as we get to material equivalence, as we build, uh, as we understand our demand signal for powders and for uh, for metal wire uh, in in these key AM modalities. Uh, those those costs are going to go down. We're, we'll, we will invest along with industry in, in the industrial base and in the, in, the, in you know, actually making the powder and making the wire, and we'll see material costs go down. Um, we are training the workforce in our, our workforce pipeline programs. They 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 have uh, AM specific training. Uh, we're trying to build the workforce at the same rate that the demand signal for AM is going up. So we'll essentially take. Uh, the conventional CNC machinist over a lot, over a period of time, next five years, we'll take that CNC machinist and we'll make them into additive manufacturing uh, workers who 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 can do both, uh, you know, additive and subtractive uh, type machining. And so, by transitioning, building that workforce, building the underlying foundation of supply chain, uh, we'll ultimately keep those costs down. Uh, and most importantly, when it comes to submarine new construction and sustainment. Uh, the reason that that I feel confident or that I am confident about a AM uh, being cost competitive is that the 
cost of schedule delays caused by not having uh, caster forge components uh, is much more than, you know, say a, a, a 10 or 15% cost difference in an individual component, even today. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. If, if you're going to have to wait for something and you're delaying welders and pipe fitters and then paying a little extra to just make it yourself is probably far cheaper. So that, yeah, that we can, re- we found we can reduce cycle times uh, by uh, 60 to 90% and have much less machining required on the back end. Uh, and, and we're confident that as we drive towards material equivalents, that that'll become even more of a robust uh, calculation. So one question that I had is, you know, I was thinking in terms of, and you know, for those who uh, haven't spent much time at sea, corrosion is, is a huge problem. And if your entire, you know, vessel is, is underwater, you're constantly fighting corrosion. So, you know, the idea that, that Ohio has lasted 40 years uh, of that constant fight against corrosion is, is pretty spectacular. But I, I'm curious, has there been much in the way of developments in terms of, I don't know, non-corrosive polymers or other technologies that you can coat, you can, you know, when you were talking about added manufacturing, I was thinking, man, how could you, how could you coat materials in the additive manufacturing process to make them non-corrosive? Or how could you use new polymers other than the traditional, you know, gray paint we use to try to make, uh, you know, the next class of, of submarine, you know, quieter, less corrosive, smoother through the water, all of those kinds of things. Is, 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 am I off track here or is there anything going on in those? No, you're, you're not, not off track at all, Adam. Uh, we, we're spending um, right, a, a lot, a lot of, of my, my team's today energy is spent on how we build that metal forming capacity with AM. Uh, but as, as we look forward uh, toward to future submarines and towards the, long, the very long 40 plus year life cycle of Columbia's, um, as well as how we can improve Ohio's in the short term as, as, they, as they go out to the end of their life. Um, we, we, do, we do have folks, uh, both, both who are working like SSNX, as well as folks who are in, in the R&D world, uh, who are helping us get uh, w- walk that line, I'll call it, and you kind of defined it, between uh, survivability um, and corrosion and what are the right coatings and, 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 and working on making stuff that, that doesn't exist today or, or that didn't exist yesterday. Uh, and figuring out how, how that uh, intertwines itself with that additive manufacturing capability. And down the road, right, a, a, my team spends a lot of its time, again, like how do we make this component that we already have down the road, what AM is going to bring us not only in, in, in you know, that, that corrosion kind of world and what we can apply and how easy it is to apply or not, but also the idea that we can design components and, you know, we can make uh, different shapes and flow paths and all those kind of things with AM that we couldn't necessarily uh, make with castings and forgings, uh, much more flexibility in design. So future submarines will be able to take advantage of that as we gain the confidence in the metal itself. Yeah. Now it's that time in the show where we like to bring out our good friend, Bob, the genie. And as I rub the, my magic lamp, Bob, of course, grants three wishes to all guests, but those wishes must uh, surround the topics of discussion. So no world peace, no great wealth or riches. So as, as Bob grants you three wishes, 
related to our topics. What what would be wish number one? Uh, Wish number one would be, um, you know, we've started some national outreach programs together with our nonprofit partner called Blue Forge Alliance. Uh, Buildsubmarines.com is the name of the website that we're using for national outreach. You know, we we sort of determined that kind of like with the additive manufacturing thing, we're not going to get to where we need to get workforce-wise, uh, be it in the government team, in the engineering team, at the labs, at the shipbuilders, in the supply chain, without without a fundamental realization that building submarines is incredibly important to this nation. So continued success uh, of that endeavor, that national marketing endeavor uh, to connect the nation with its submarines, uh, to connect the nation with its national security. Uh, and to get the workforce we need, both in summary, new construction and sustainment. Uh, that that would be wish one for sure, as I think it's foundational uh, to, to any anything else I want to do in this space. Now, you'll have to let me know, because I read a study yesterday that said that men are going to college at the lowest rate in the last 50 years because they're finding, you know, just the it's not worth the buck, the bang isn't worth the buck. And so they're going into, you know, trades and other skilled positions. So I wonder if that will help solve, you know, some of your problem, this idea that not everybody goes to college, that trades are a legitimate place to be. And so hopefully that'll help solve, solve your challenge with workforce. We believe so. We, we really do. And we're seeing some evidence of that, but you know, in, in like in classic marketing strategy, we have to go win the market share in that space, right. And attract those folks under, you know, we're at, we're at that intersection of national service uh, and good, good career jobs in machining and welding and things like that. So we're really trying to take advantage of it. Yeah. So, okay. So wish number two. Um, wish number two would be, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to, to, to stick with workforce again, uh, but we have, we have a relatively inexperienced, not, not relatively, we have, we have an inexperienced workforce as we ramp up to this one plus two, uh, both, both, you know, me, my team, um, the shipbuilder supply chain at the labs, and, you know, uh, we want to do everything we can culturally to retain and upskill that workforce in an incredible way, energize them, uh, train them at a, at a rate that the nation hasn't done since the, the World War II Freedom Forge kind of era, and keep those people, send them the right belonging cues. Uh, make them help them understand how important what they're the work they're doing is uh, and and dr- drive us you know we, we need to get uh, we need to get like 40 percent better in like two years here and you know that that feels like uh, the, the, the the genie needs to help me a little bit there yeah <laughs> okay so wish number three uh, w- wish number three is that uh, the urgency and agility, uh, that we need as a nation uh, in order to transition uh, to advanced manufacturing, uh, not just for submarines, uh, but f- for the Air Force programs, for the Army programs, uh, in, our, in our space programs, uh, Marines fixing vehicles, for all those things that, that we uh, capture, that American innovation, urgency, and agility, that quite, quite frankly, we, we trained our, in, in some ways, we trained ourselves not to have uh, during during the the peace dividend years, 
that we recapture that and and thereby in an enabling uh, advanced manufacturing in a, in a in an over overwhelming way that we we change requirements quickly that we adapt quickly uh, and that you know things like additive and the sixty to ninety percent cycle time uh, decrease but b- become you know just a, a normal day in U.S. national security. Yeah. Now, as we end the show, what would be your takeaway message for the listeners in regard to to the work y'all are doing? We believe, um, and and I I think that the national security strategy, uh, frankly, bears it out that uh, building Columbia is delivering them on time, uh, building attack submarines, delivering them on time. Uh, and maintaining the, those uh, all those classes of submarines uh, are critical uh, to national security. Uh, and I know know that uh, most of your listeners are part are part of this national security team. Uh, so you know it, you know it's a, a little a little bit of an echo chamber, but would just remind them that as they engage with their families, their friends, their communities, uh, that we're at a crucial time in our nation where. We need disciples and diplomats who aren't just talking about this uh, and the national challenge we have with workforce and technology uh, and getting the products out there and the funding that's required and all those things that we do have. We do indeed have an existential threat to our nation. And just talking amongst ourselves isn't going to do the job. We have to get out there to our communities and be uh, disciples and diplomats, you know, sort of witnessing to to our, our, our national population what's going on. All right. Matt Sermon, thanks for joining us on NucleCast. Thanks, Adam. Have a great day. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode. Well, that was a really interesting interview with Matt Sermon. Uh, he, I didn't know Matt before, so um, it's you know it was a discussion about interesting topics, and we don't really talk that much about the Navy and the submarine building program. So it was good to, to finally talk about it and get a better sense of how the Navy's thinking about building submarines and, you know, where it's at and what are its challenges and the idea of additive manufacturing. And I hadn't really thought about how additive manufacturing, even though, you know, it can be more expensive, but it's a a dramatic cost saver because it keeps, you know, the boats on schedule. So that, that was really, that was sort of a key takeaway for me. I'm not sure what your key takeaway was, but that was one of the things I had never thought about before. So I found that interesting. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Channington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpall. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast.